0: Uh, hey, it is good to see you. Real quick, uh, before I even start talking, um, I have black stuff all over my hands. And it's, uh, it's not part of a, uh, a really creative sermon illustration. It's a plumbing experiment gone wrong. And so I try to think of a creative way to tie it into the message this morning, and I can't. So sorry for that distraction. Uh, I'm just going to preach anyway. I couldn't get it to come off. Okay, well, uh, we'll be in Genesis 22 in just a moment. If you want to go ahead and make your way to that passage in your Bible on your iPhone, iPad, gidgety-gadgety thing. Um, go ahead and turn there. We are working on getting our internet up and running for public use here in the sanctuary. I know some of you use that to search. and uh, while, I, I know you don't use it for Facebook or games while I'm preaching, but use it to search the scriptures and use apps, and so we're hoping to get that back up and running publicly for you soon. Uh, Genesis 22, a couple of announcements before we start this morning. One thing for parents, this is a really important announcement. It's really the first time... That I think we've ever done anything like this. We're doing what we're calling a parent sync meeting. And uh, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a a chance for parents and the ministry to meet together. To get in sync. To uh, talk about things coming up. To share with parents some of the things going on right now. uh, To get feedback. To collaborate. uh, Time for Q&A. So um, there's a parent sync coming up on March the 17th. I don't think that's in the worship guide. So if you're a parent... Go ahead and type that into your calendar on your phone or write that down, maybe in your worship guide. March 17th from four to six, we need every parent who has a pulse and is in the state of Texas that day to be here. And uh, so it's a super, I was told to make sure that it's expressed as a super important meeting. So there you go. Need you here for that parents. Uh, The other thing is Connect class. I know we've been talking about it, trying to figure out uh, the calendar's just weird this year. You've got normal spring break coming up, but then Easter's in March, So it's really hard to get things on the calendar in a way that's conducive for family schedules. And so the Connect class, we want to schedule it at a time where um, most of our folks are in town and we can do it back-to-back weeks. And so it's going to be April before we can actually do that. If you are waiting right now for Connect class to join Solid Rock Church, um, let me give you the dates. Again, you can write those down. April 7th and 14th, two Sundays back-to-back during the second service, we'll be hosting our next Connect class. And so if you're waiting on that, just jot that down. And hopefully it won't change between now and then. Okay, so uh, we're ready to go. Genesis 22. Uh, a couple of things. First of all, I wanted to say to you, I really have just enjoyed and appreciate the feedback that, that I've been getting from some of you on the series. And, uh, and, and what I'm hearing from you is that this is helpful. Uh, especially maybe for some of you who haven't been in church your whole life and the, the Bible is kind of intimidating because it's full of all these different stories and so how does it all fit together? I'm hearing some positive feedback and I appreciate that. It lets us know um, that we're, uh, we're hopefully on the right track and I've even been hearing some, from some folks who've been in church their whole life and have not seen the whole picture and so what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the story of God, the greater story of God and how our little stories fit into this great story of God. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at a small story in Genesis 22. And we're going to spend the first part of our time together really just looking at this story. And then the end of the sermon, we'll be looking at how this story fits into the greater story of God. And, uh, and hopefully begin to glean how our story fits in as well. So Genesis 22, uh, verse 1, begins with the words, after these things. So we have to ask, what things? What things have happened so far? Well, we're still in the life of Abraham... Isaac has been born, but it's not yet a story about Isaac yet. It's more of a story about Abraham. So here's what's happened. God has broke silence with Abraham, who, by the way, when God called Abraham, was a a pagan Gentile, okay? There is no uh, nation of Israel. There are not a group of people who are collectively being faithful to God. Abraham was just basically a shepherd, Traveling with his family, living uh, with his family, and, and herding uh, livestock, and so there wasn't anything really special about Abraham. It's important for me to remind myself of that: that uh, God didn't call me; He hasn't called you because there's something special about you. It's actually the lack of specialness about us that makes it amazing that God calls us at all. So God has called Abraham. Said Abraham, "I've got a plan." First of all, I want you to get ready to leave and come follow me. First part of the plan. Second thing is, I'm going to rescue the nations through your descendants. So God initiates this rescue plan. Says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your family great. I'm going to make your family, matter of fact, so great. It's become a nation among nations. But I'm going to rescue the nations through your descendants. I promise to do this. So Abraham believed God. So Abraham believes God. He packs up and he leaves. Now, there's some... Some positives and some negatives that happened. The positives are that that Abraham left. The negatives are that even though Abraham believed God, he still tried to take the promise into his own hands on many occasions. I don't know if you ever struggle with this, struggle with believing God to do something and then then trying to take it back into your own hands. And so he does it. I mean, right off the bat, he lies about his wife, Sarah. He believes that God's going to do this, but for some reason he feels like it's up to him to keep the rescue plan alive. So he lies about his wife, Sarah, uh, when he's in Egypt. Uh, then they leave Egypt and go back to the land kind of of the Canaan region. And, uh, and so instead of waiting on God to get his wife pregnant, he takes his wife's concubine in. Yeah, this is what happens in the story where he's taking it into his own hands and she gets pregnant and gives birth to a son, Ishmael. Okay, and God says, Abraham, <laughs> I said, I'm the one who's gonna do this, quit. And so sure enough, uh, they, they're uh, confronted by another king, Abimelech and Abraham lies again about Sarah. Uh, so once again, he's, he's trying to keep the promise alive, as though God needs Abraham to rescue him. Uh, isn't that kind of ironic, how God promises to rescue? And for some reason, Abraham's trying to bail God out here, which is ironically convicting. Um, and then, so here's what happens. God says, I'm going to do this. And so Sarah gets pregnant, and Isaac is born. So when you see those words, after these things, all of that is implied. So after these things... Abraham has begun following God to the point where he's left his homeland. He's traveled around. uh, And so now he has a son, Isaac. The first of the descendants is born, Isaac. And this is where we find the story in Genesis 22. Now, after these things, God tested Abraham. We'll talk more about that towards the end. But this idea of testing is the idea of revealing. Okay, so when you go take a test at school, it reveals either how well you crammed at the last minute or how well you actually learned the material, testing reveals something, okay? And so God is gonna reveal something through this story. So God tests Abraham and he says to him, I love this, probably spend the whole morning on this one word, Abraham. Now, if you've been following with us in the text, uh, you know that that's a very significant word. Uh, Last week, Valentine was here preaching, talking about Uh, the circumcision, the covenant, the mark of the covenant, but also something changed. Abraham's name changed in Genesis 17. It went from Abram, which is exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of the multitudes. So God is doing two things when he calls Abraham, Abraham. One, he's restating the promise, isn't he? Abraham, I'm calling you the father of many nations. What is he saying? I'm reminding you that I made a promise to you and I aim to fulfill it. But the second thing is God is calling Abraham by his new identity. Now this is something I think we need to hear. We are notoriously a people who return to our former identities. There's a scripture that talks about how a dog returns to his vomit. It's a disgusting illustration. It comes from the Bible. So we also return to our former identities. So I love what God is doing here. Like no longer does the word Abram come up. God is calling Abraham by his new identity. This is who he is now. And so I would say to us who are in Christ, who have that same tendency to return to our former identities that God still calls us by our new identity. Praise God. Okay? Because there isn't a Christian on the face of the earth Right? who hasn't believed God like Abraham and then walk through life struggling at times to believe it. And we fall down, we make mistakes, and then what, what's the very thing that happens? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe I never did become a Christian. Maybe I never did give my life to Christ. Maybe, right? And we struggle in our identity and God speaks back into that moment and says, no, 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 you are my child. And I love that, how God begins to use Abraham's new identity the same way he does with you and I. Abraham, and Abraham responds, here am I. It's not the first time that God has said that. He used to say Abram, but he said Abram, and Abraham would respond to God. Now he's responding, here am I. What a great response. Um, Not just saying, God, in case you're looking for me, this is where I am, but he's expressing what? A, A sense of, I'm available. What would you like to say to me? And I think about the way that I tend to respond to God when he says, Jason, and I tend to say, um, I'm busy right now or I'll get with you in just a minute or all the different things that come to mind when God really speaks to me and challenges me on things like I'm a delayed responder to God. I tend to respond with well maybe that wasn't God. Have you done that? Like maybe in like a worship service like God is speaking to you through the songs and through the word and and like I mean you just know it but you're but you you somehow play it off like I'm just overhearing God talk to somebody else maybe. Like, that guy, you know, who's on the back row, who just really needs to hear about Jesus. Like, God is speaking to him so loud, I can even hear it. And we, and we tend to put God off. I just love this response from Abraham. Abraham. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to play out again in this story. I'm not just making a big deal out of nothing. This is huge. Abraham's response to God. So he responds and says, here I am. So here's what God says. Listen to these words. Take your son. Okay, I'm a dad. He already has my attention. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Does that have anybody's attention? Do we understand what God just said? Abraham, right, the one of whom which I'm gonna work through your descendants, take the first one I gave you and, and not one who's like this disobedient, rebellious kid you don't like, take your only son whom you love and don't just take him on a trip, you take him all the way to Mount Moriah and you offer him there as a burnt offering, got my attention and I'll just be honest with you I've read this story close to a dozen times this week preparing for this morning and I would say over half of the times I've read through it have left me in tears so now we're really interested what's Abraham going to do is he going to respond like he did in Genesis 12 and said all right let's go or is he going to ask questions Maybe he's going to follow reluctantly, which again tends to be one of my natural responses to God. I'm following, but at a really slow pace. Look at what Abraham does. So Abraham rose early in the morning. What does that phrase tell you? Is there any sense of reluctancy in that phrase? Is there any sense of God, I'm too busy for you right now. Tell you what, I'm going to wait and just make sure I heard God. See if he says the same thing tomorrow. Abraham clearly heard God. And he's clearly responding, isn't he? Now, if the phrase before hadn't said that, that Abraham loved his son, you and I would begin to really quickly question his motives, wouldn't we? What are you so anxious about, Abraham? God just told you to go kill your son. To sacrifice him and burn him. And you're getting up early in the morning to go do this? So Abraham gets up early. He saddled his donkey. He took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. So we don't know exactly where uh, this mountain is, this Moriah, but it's presumed it's probably pretty close to Jerusalem. Um, I don't want to draw too hard of a connection there because we're not really sure. But we know it was a three-day journey, right? So this was a big deal. So Abraham gets up early, wakes up two of his servants, wakes up Isaac, goes and cuts the wood, loads the donkey, and they set off for three days' journey. Now it says Abraham lifted his eyes and saw it. I don't know if that's because he's like not wanting to see it and he's walking with his you know, eyes to the ground. I'm not sure what's going on there. But I, I am trying to imagine the lump in his throat as he looks up. Because he doesn't know. Following God, this could be a three-year journey, right? I mean, the way God's leading Abraham, he doesn't know. But he looks up and when he sees Mount Moriah, he knows that's the place. And so what was maybe just... This vague idea of what God was going to do is becoming a reality. He can see the mountain. He can see his son. He knows what God called him to go do. All right. Verse 5 is such an important verse to help me understand as a dad what's going on here in Abraham's heart. Then Abraham said to his young men. so he sees where he's got to go. Okay, we're done. Were there. He tells them, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, which is his son, will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, now I'm tempted to think that Abraham is thinking that God isn't going to make him go through with it. I'm tempted to think, okay, Abraham just really doesn't believe this is what God's saying, and he's just going. Right? Either out of curiosity or just rolling through the motions. God wasn't serious. I mean, he's just—he's not going to do this. It's not like God to do this. Right? And so he sees the mountain. He tells his servants to stay put. He heads out and says, stay here until I get back. No, he says, stay here until we get back. In verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on the Isaac, his son. What that means, it's kind of backpack style, more than likely. Some straps. Literally, Isaac is carrying the weight of the burnt offering. I mean, could this, I mean, CPS is having a fit right now, right? So he laid it on Isaac, his son. He took his, in his hand the fire and the knife. Abraham's not just going through the motions here. I mean, he's literally got the fire, which was like a torch style. I mean, once you get a fire lit, and these days you kept it lit, he has the fire, probably a smoldering log. He has the firewood. He has the sacrifice, and he has the knife. And then verse seven. And Isaac says to his father Abraham, my father, And Abraham responds with, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But dad, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? This is is the question I don't think Abraham wanted his son to ask. Partially because Abraham's asking that that question himself. But this is the point where we realize Isaac doesn't really know what's going on. So Abraham responds in verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. That's uh, the second time we get this phrase about them being together. It's going to come up again. Now, we still don't have any indication here that Abraham is talking about God's going to have a lamb tied up, ready to go. Like, all, all we know is that Abraham is saying God's going to provide. Maybe he's thinking, I mean, God gave you to me. Maybe he's thinking, you know, God gave you to me, Isaac. He's already provided the lamb for the sacrifice, And so they move forward together. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham. So Abraham's there. Isaac's there. Isaac dropped the wood. He begins to build an altar. Abraham built the altar there. And he laid the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son Laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham, like like verse 10, I just don't get it. I I really don't get it. Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham is going through with this. Right? Right? Abraham's not just going through the motions. He didn't just tie up his son and sit down on a log and go, Let's wait for God to rescue us. He's literally going through with what God asked him. He's built an altar, which means he probably piled some stones together. He he put the wood in order. Like there was a, a way to arrange a fire. He arranged the fire the whole time thinking, any time now, God, right? Did you just, I mean, you say the word and I'm stopping. God hasn't stopped him yet, has he? So what does he do? He does whatever comes next. He takes his son. Now, it says that he he, he binds him to the altar. And so now I'm thinking, I mean, there's nothing in this text to indicate that he's pulled Isaac aside and whispered in his ear, Isaac, just go go through the motions. I'm not really going to light it. Like, he ties his son up. And puts him on the altar and reaches over and grabs the knife. To do what? To scare his son? To slaughter his son. And it's at this moment. God breaks through and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says what? (laughs) I'm assuming with much more anxiousness now. Right? This isn't the point where you want to put God off for a day, is it? I mean, this is not the point where you want to say, I don't know if God's talking to me. Like, yes. Yes, God, here I am. Please say something. Please. Rescue me. Rescue my son from this moment. And God does. In verse 12. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted his eyes and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and offered it up as a, a burnt offering instead of his son. Like, this is probably like I, the best and the worst of Abraham's worship. I mean, I can't imagine a man more relieved in this moment to go, like, I'm so excited. Eh? You know, just that moment of relief. Isaac, let's, let's do this. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And he is said to this day on the mount that the Lord... Of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now, that's a big word, provided, isn't it? Like, man, I can't imagine. And so I step back from this story as a dad, and I go, wow, what, what a ridiculous thing to ask of a dad. Amen? I mean, can we be honest? What a ridiculous thing to ask of a dad. And I, you know what I hear God saying back to me when I asked that question this week? Yeah. What a ridiculous thing to ask of a dad. Of a father. To give his only son. Of which he loves. As an offering. Now, before we move forward, I want to stop for just a minute and maybe just speak to parents, maybe dads, maybe leaders of the family for just a moment. What we just witnessed here, I have a question. Who was Abraham more faithful to in this story, God or his son? It's a trick question, isn't it? It's hard to separate the two, isn't it? I mean, ultimately, God was most, I mean, Abraham was most faithful to God, right? I mean, when his son started asking questions, If he was going to let his faithfulness reside to his son over God, at that moment the story would begin to change. But it doesn't change until God rescues. And so ultimately God is being more faithful to, I mean Abraham is being more faithful to God. Can we agree on that? So those of us who are leaders in our families, like as hard as as it sounds, to be faithful to those who follow us. We have to first and foremost be faithful to God. God is going to call you leaders to follow. And to follow in a way that requires faith. To follow in a way that sometimes your family, um, like if you're a man and you're leading your wife, your wife is going to ask some hard questions. Your kids are going to ask hard questions. And your faithfulness, right, must be first and foremost wrapped up in God. So that when when they ask, where are we going? What are we doing? You're able to say, we're we're following God. Like, here's two things. If if you're going to teach your children to be obedient, I mean just obedient to you, think about this. How are you going to display obedience to them if they never get to watch you being obedient? How do they know what obedience is? Major breakthrough in parenting, right? Right? If all you are is authority and and you're telling your kids to be obedient, how do they know what obedient looks like unless you as their parent have displayed obedience? You think Isaac, I mean, we know he's able to talk. We don't know, like, how much he's getting of this story. But do you think Isaac has any doubt at all what it looks like to be obedient to God after this event? I, I mean, right? He knows what it looks like to be obedient. But there's a second part of this that's being displayed here for Isaac. And here it is, that God is trustworthy. You can say that to your kids all day long, but if they don't see you trusting God like he's trustworthy. And this isn't just for kids. I mean, it's, it's all the people you follow. You're a, a life group leader. You're encouraging your life group, maybe young believers in your life group, to trust God. Right? Right? That's a concept until you can see it played out. What does it look like to trust God? And so just before we get any further beyond this story, like, like Abraham trusts God, doesn't he? God's going to provide. Now when we get to the New Testament, we get some commentary on this passage. Uh, in, In Hebrews I read something for you from Hebrews. This is chapter eleven, seventeen. Says this: By faith Abraham, when he was tested, okay, so there's that word again that means to reveal. He offered up Isaac, and when he, when he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, "Through Isaac shall your offering be, off, offspring be named." So what? Are, I mean, what a moment of like. Just crossroads for Abraham. I love my son. God's asking me to kill my son. God made a promise that he was going to bless all the nations through this son. Now he's asking me to to kill my son. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That lets us know what was going on in Abraham's heart. Did he think that that God was just, just messing around? This was just going to be some metaphor or illustration story. Abraham literally thought, I'm going to go through with every bit of this if God asks me to. And even if I slaughter my son, God gave him to me out of a promise. God's going to keep his promise. God is trustworthy. Even if that means God must raise him from the dead. Now this begins to pull this little 17 verse story out into a bigger story, doesn't it? The title of the message is um, A Shadow of the Rescue, and uh, I messed with different titles for a while before I landed on that one. The Bible uses the word shadow as a metaphor in two different ways, and they're actually two opposite ways, okay? So we're going to kind of pull this story out into the big story. So you know how a shadow works. So if I've got the story of God here and we're talking about a shadow, like I can lay my hand between the story and the light and it casts a shadow. We know how shadows work, right? So there is this negative idea where shadow represents evil. This is our understanding of what happened at the fall with sin and death. A shadow was cast over humanity. Okay, so the idea of the shadow where places can hide, where the enemy can hide, where we tried to hide our sin and try to hide from God. There's this negative sense of shadow being cast across the story of God. The psalmist refers to the shadow several different places. Um, Psalm 23, 4, been to a funeral. Lately you've heard this one. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right, that's not a good shadow, is it? The shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Um, Psalm 107, starting in verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. And this is a description of, first of all, God's people, okay, when they're separated from him. So this is a description of you and I in our former lives, our former identities when we're separated from God. For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Verse 12, so he bowed their hearts down with hard labor and they fell down with none to help. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and he burst their bonds apart. There's this idea of shadow. So if you could just kind of picture that story in the garden where Adam and Eve are disobedient, a shadow was cast across the story of God. But when you get to Jesus, there's another shadow that's cast. And this one is not the shadow of death. Okay, now just, just work with me here. A shadow is cast forwards and backwards. And this is the shadow of peace and rest. The psalmist also talks about this shadow. Psalm 17 keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Now this is a different kind of shadow, isn't it? It's the imagery of like... Um, a mother hen, or an eagle, right? The, the safest place for a little baby eagle to be is where? Not just next to mom, but under the shadow of the wings. And for people who live in the desert, the idea of a shadow was a place of rest, right? When you're traveling and the scorching sun is beating down on you, like a shadow was a rare place to find in the desert. And if you could find a shadow, there, there you could find what? Rest, protection from the sun, relief, peace, and rest. So what we understand is God's got this great story. And sin has cast a shadow across humanity. But the cross of Jesus, there's no, there's no mistake about the phrases that we're reading in this story that sound so much like the story of Jesus. Because you see, the cross of Jesus is not just an event in time. It's an event that casts a shadow over all time, a shadow of peace and rest. And so as we read the story of Abraham and Isaac, we see, we see the answer to the question. So if this is God's story, right, how do, how do I take my story and become part of God's story? Okay, so that's the question. How do I then take my little story and become part of God's greater story? And the answer is the cross. This is the answer. This is everything that we're reading in the Bible is pointing to what? The cross. Genesis 12 was pointed to the cross. Last week, Genesis 17 was pointed to the cross. This week, Genesis 22 is pointed to the cross. When we get to Exodus 1 through 3, it's going to be pointing where? The cross, You see what we're talking about? The shadow of the cross is being cast. And, and Abraham, I mean, come on, dad. I mean, what a hard thing, event to go through. But what was God displaying to us? It is a ridiculous thing to give up your one and only son to be killed. It's, a, it's an absurd thing to ask for. And God says to us, right, John 3.16 he, he begins, the gospels begin with John the Baptist and he's making a way for Jesus. He's letting people know the kingdom's coming, the kingdom's coming, get ready, get ready, get ready. If you remember the words that came out of his mouth when he sees Jesus coming. John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold. Like, this takes me back to the story of Abraham, that moment of like rescue when God says, Abraham, Stop! And John the Baptist looks up and he points at Jesus. Just like Abraham pointed at the ram and went, "Ha! Oh, thank you. He points at Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So today, we'll end here. The question that I am gonna ask you this morning is have you like where's your story at? Are you still living the side story? Like still working on your own plot, your own scheme trying to build up to your own climax trying to be the hero of your own story or have you taken your little story and have you thrown it into the big greater story of God? So the question is how do you do that? How do I do that? How do I quit living my story and and for myself and begin living for him and in his story? And the answer is the same. It's the cross. That by believing in Jesus, his one and only son, you would have the forgiveness of sin. We just sang about it. We could live a life, right, that has no guilt and has no fear of death. Okay, you find that at the cross by believing in Jesus like I started to use my, uh, my hands as a, as a goofy sermon illustration about how sin attaches itself to us. The problem is I have no way to go show you how Jesus washes us clean because the reality is that he doesn't just start scrubbing a little piece at a time. At the moment you believe, all sin, all guilt, all shame, every bit of it washed 100% pure and clean. It's all gone. And like Abram to Abraham This is your new identity. And even though we try to return to our old identities, we don't do so to be stuck in sin again. God looks at us when we try to act like who we used to be. And he says to us as a gentle father, that's not who you are anymore. Quit acting like that person. That's not who you are anymore. That's why the New Testament says, you're not just becoming a better person. That person's dead now that person has died, and now you've been resurrected in a new life. You can't go backwards through that process, right? You can't return and go back and become unresurrected and, right, and undead that way. You can't reverse that. You've crossed the chasm. You're a new person now. You have a new citizenship. You have a new name, and that's not who you are. If you're here today and Maybe this works. I don't know. You're still living and you feel like your life looks like this in a more dramatic way. Um, like like sin is stuck on you. Like if people could see inside your life, all they would see is shame and guilt and the evidence of the, the, the negative shadow. Okay? If that's who you are today, I'm telling you. You can come talk to me, you can come talk to one of our prayer partners, but who you really need to speak with today is Jesus himself. He's the one who was bound up on the altar. He's the Isaac in the story who was bound up and was literally killed as an offering on our behalf. But he didn't stay dead. God resurrected him from the dead. And so that if you and I will come to him and approach him say, this is what I've made out of my life, it's all I have to offer. He says what? Go clean yourself up and I'll see you again next week and we'll try this again. No, he says, come in just like you are. Come in just like you are. Like, I hope you feel the expense that was paid from that story on our behalf. It was a mighty work of God that happened on the cross. Why? Because we needed a mighty work of God. And he says to you today, my child, come to me and find rest in my shadow. I wanna pray for you now as the worship team comes back up.